Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. So, David, this is our second recording of the day. Uh, what are we going to be talking about today? Two, two in one hit, yeah. PRP. And well, PRP, we're going to touch a little bit on, on biofiller, a little bit. Interesting topic because I know that we've had previous discussions on PRP. We had Dr. Kat Stone on here some time ago, a couple of years ago now. Yeah, it's one Talk- of our yeah. first ones. And she was talking about her beliefs, her practices on it. She talked about the O shot, the, the P shot. And um, obviously, the treatment famously, uh, I guess, came to notoriety when Kim Kardashian sort of brought us the, the vampire facial, and it was quite the rage for a while, very popular. You know, everyone was getting it done and, and sort of performing the treatments. I know you've got some of your own views and sort of, uh, you know, how effective the treatment is, but it's out there. People know about it. And um, we're joined today by uh, Dr. Philip Singh and Helen Planting, Helen Planting from Alicuro. Um, They're sponsoring this podcast. And maybe just want to start off by saying the purpose of this podcast is not to convince you to go out and buy one of their pieces of equipment or the technology. This is purely uh, aimed at being an educational piece and perhaps put a different perspective or a different light on PRP, how it's been perceived in the marketplace, uh, both by practitioners and patients, and talk about some of the differences um, in terms of the way that the Alicuro and their technology um, use this use this type of treatment. And um, I guess it, it, you know interesting referencing um, some things in our past, like products like Sculpture, for example, which initially came onto the market. It wasn't we were using different dilutions, we we're injecting it in different planes. We had some mixed results. They've refined that over time. So, you know, I think that this is something that we, we need to constantly do is look at our treatments. Is there ways we can improve the delivery? Are there certain things that we're doing that are, are sort of changing the effic- efficacy and the outcome? So, yeah, interesting, interesting chat. Looking forward to having some of the questions answered and and changing our perspective or particularly your perspective on things. Yeah, look, um, Helen <coughs> and, and I had some chats before and I, I think it's important to say, of course, I have my own personal biases. I think we all have opinions about things, but I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn from Philip and Helen and, you know, relook at things and technology changes. Mm. So why don't we introduce Helen first and then we can come to Philip. But Helen, you 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 represent Alicuro. So tell us about yourself, your own background and, and the company. Oh, yeah, thanks guys. And um, yeah, and I, I really endorse, I guess, your introduction that is we're here for improving education about PRP. Um, and just, I guess, maybe to consider some different questions that people haven't actually thought about before. So, um, yeah, so that's exactly where we want to go with the discussion today. So, um, Alicuro is uh, Australian-owned and operated. It was has been in business for nine years, and we solely look after platelet-rich plasma, so PRP systems, clinical training, um, and all the support that kind of goes along with that. Um, so, we supply a range of different um, uh, procedural areas. So, 
a very large area for us is like radiology, uh, orthopedics. We also look after a lot of fertility specialists now. And then, of course, when we have all of the uh, surgical treatments and then the aesthetics is, a, is a, of course, a uh, burgeoning area. And we've, we've seen a dramatic uh, increase in interest this year in PRP. I guess people want to look at how to improve their skin particularly and a, a big interest um, in hair PRP as well. So I guess that's what we kind of want to have a talk about today is how clinicians can optimise their PRP treatment to try to deliver the best possible outcome for the patient. And I guess to also talk about, um, you know, suitable clinical indications, who it's not suitable for, contraindications. You know, it's not a panacea. It can't solve everything. And for the right patient, for the right clinical presentation, um, it should, if you follow the signs, it should work well. Fantastic. And Philip, tell us about yourself. Where do you practice? What's your background and specialty? Yeah, well, so I'm over in uh, Perth, Western Australia, um, uh, consultant dermatologist, um, and uh, had a special interest early on in terms of some of the aesthetic cosmetics, uh, particularly uh, dealing with a lot of the acne patients and the scarring from that. Um, I guess a frustration for me during training was you're not necessarily exposed to too much, uh, at least over here in WA compared to interstate or overseas. Um, so uh, took it on my own bat to go do a bit of training elsewhere, particularly over in, in Gold Coast and in southeast Queensland, um, and brought brought that back to my, my practice here in Perth. So uh, based at a, a private practice uh, near the zoo uh, in South Perth here, uh, and I do consult at one of the, the public hospitals as well. Right. So Helen, we might yeah. we might uh, jump over to you, I guess, for this for, I guess first kind of question, and maybe we should just start at the very beginning in terms of you know what is PRP? I mean, we all know it stands for platelet rich plasma plasma, um, but what is it? Sort of where did it come from? Um, you know, as I said, it became famous from Kim Kardashian and her family sort of splashing it all all, all over the yeah. media. So can you give us just a bit of a bit of a background um, about it, about the treatment, and and so on? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, there's a lot of people don't understand, uh, even a lot of advanced clinicians don't understand exactly what platelet-rich plasma is. So it's the definition describes basically a unit of plasma that has a higher platelet concentration that would be found in the patient's baseline blood sample, okay? But to be termed via the international classification, that baseline concentration should be at least three times the baseline concentration, Otherwise, a plate of dose is deemed to be low and perhaps not going to be clinically effective. Um, so PRP, looking at how it, I guess, evolved, I, I guess people initially just thought that platelets were uh, responsible for hemostasis and clotting within the body. Um, and then only as time has gone on that have they realised that platelets and their contained growth factors have a myriad of other um, benefits for the body and, and mostly in terms of regeneration and healing. So, and I need to sort of preface, I guess, what we're going to talk about today is that there are still many areas of PRP science that are still not fully understood, okay? Like, as you've talked before about sculpture, there's a journey of knowledge, you know, there's an evolution of knowledge, and that's definitely the case with PRP. So, we don't know exactly know why it all works or exactly how it all works, what we can do is observe the outcome change in the target tissue after exposure to the platelet release growth factors. So and it's like, you know, like initially they thought I think that there were only maybe seven different growth factors inside platelets. And now there's believed to be 
just under 1,200 different growth factors and proteins, okay? But we still don't know exactly what each one of them do, except what we do know generally is that the platelet-release growth factors either initiate or sustain a biological reset within whatever tissue it is injected, okay? So basically, they work like a chemical controller uh, and a messaging system to tell the target cell that it needs to uh, fire up, be more metabolically active. It tells the body to send stem cells to the area. It also instructs the body to induce angiogenesis, to grow new blood vessels into the area and to continue up that nutrient supply. And so when you inject a high platelet dose PRP into an area of, of tissue where there is innervation, the patients can definitely feel this. And as a clinician, if you're injecting the skin, we can definitely observe these changes inside the target tissue, say inside the dermis. You can you can observe that externally. So mm. it's quite fascinating. I mean, Philip, I mean, you've got a lot of experience with injecting PRP and what patients feel um, during the treatment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, certainly agree with that. I mean, there's some patients that uh, for the facial treatments, we might uh, not use any of the, the topical anesthetics, uh, but generally it's it's an area that is amenable to the topical anesthetic because you can clean it off quite easily compared to other areas like the scalp. Um, but I've had a few that have you know not been that way inclined. They just want to do a, a set area and that kind of uh, initial sensation, buzzing, tingling. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's not really a pain sensation, but they definitely know something's going on. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So maybe we could just talk about how PRP is sort of harvested and made, and then maybe you could tell us specifically maybe how the Alicura system potentially differs because. My understanding, it's a sort of a three-step process. You you sort of take the blood, spin it, and then you get your plasma. But Philip, do you just want to walk through sort of the steps in a bit more detail about ha- how it's made? And then maybe Helen can talk about the, the Alicura system. Yeah, so I guess uh, one of the main points, I think, because there's, there's PRP and there's PRP, there's so many different protocols around and different companies. Um, uh, the benefit that I like about Alicura is it's very straightforward, nice protocol, uh, obviously a fair bit involved in terms of training, getting people comfortable with it. <clears throat> in my practice, we'll have the, the nurses actually draw the blood. Uh, that will obviously be done as a complete sterile scenario. Uh, that's obviously handled carefully, put into the actual uh, container. Uh, that's then transferred into a centrifuge. Uh, there's a particular protocol depending on the amount of blood you've taken and the size of the tube in terms of the spin and the spin down rate. Hmm. Um, that patient is essentially left it either uh, back in that uh, waiting room or you know off to the side reading a book or whatever. Um, and then that sample is then taken out of the centrifuge, put into the um, uh, kind of you know placement device that allows us to, to decant what we need. Um, and again, all sterile, no, no contact with the outside world, uh, and then drawn up into um, the syringe that we require. Um, I tend to use a, a multi-pin injector uh, for a lot of the things that we'd be looking at treating, whether it be the, the general face, uh, scars, um, obviously for hair and other, other things like that. Um, but there are defined areas that we'd use a, an actual um, needle cannula, uh, freehand syringe, particularly that periorbital, perioral area. Um, that process can take anywhere from kind of 15, 20 minutes to have all set up. So usually the patients are booked in for, for that time frame of, of waiting and then they're brought in, um, you know, pretty straightforward in terms of the, the patient uh, being, being prepped up for us. They're usually for the face uh, with a topical anesthetic. 
Um, I find that really just takes the edge off things. They'll still feel a fair bit at times, depending on which anaesthetic you use. Uh, some areas are a bit more delicate, periorbital, perioral. Um, if we're doing the freehand, we generally don't need to do the, the topical anaesthetic. We'll get away with uh, either a small bleb just to allow the, the cannula insertion. Um, or for those that are comfortable with it, we just, uh, they grin and bear it. It's more of a discomfort, pressure and pushing as you manipulate the cannula as you would with, with a filler. Hmm. Um, yeah. Um, the nurse is usually uh, in, in the room with us, but technically you can do it as a sole clinician. So it's, you know, quite straightforward in that regard. Um, the other benefit I think is, you know, for the Alicura protocol, it's, you know, this kind of idea that there's nothing added to it, nothing foreign. So the risk of side effects for some abnormal reaction is, is essentially very, very, very low. Um, you know, small risk of infection if it isn't handled properly, but uh, our protocol is making sure that we don't have patients kind of booked back to back. So, you know, it's their blood sample. So there's no confusion in terms of getting anything mixed up. Um, I think that's probably one of the big risks or fears that you may have when you're, you're handling the blood products, mm. um, getting that kind of blood transfusion reaction mm. by injecting the wrong blood into someone. Yeah. Um, in terms of aftercares, again, downtime is, is not that bad compared to some of the other procedures you may be considering. Uh, we generally get them for, for the first two days to keep it pretty simple. Um, you know, good skincare routine, good cleansing approach, not massaging, aggravating the scalp. They should be careful with exercise routine. The idea of maybe increasing cardiac output and any of that sort of stuff that might affect the platelet activity. Uh, when in reality, you know, most of that activity is done very early on after the, the injection, uh, generally for, for pedantic nature, getting them to be quite careful for a couple of days afterwards. Um, almost everyone tolerates it really well, particularly for the, the, the aesthetic facial areas. Um, treating scars a little bit difficult at, at times based on the, the thickness or tendency for it to, to not necessarily uh, allow the injection to, to be processed like you would with an intralesional steroid injection. Really, you're going into a tight area, a bit unpredictable, obviously, what's happening under the skin with those scar areas. Um, yeah. Okay. And I guess the obvious question is, well, how does that process differ from some of the existing, you know, uh, brands on the market that already offer PRP? What, why is the Allocura system different? Um, I, from my experience, and I haven't tried all of them, but I've uh, been privy to, to at least two of the other devices on the market. Um, I think the the blood draw, the handling, the transfer, that's uh, a little bit neater and nicer with the Allocura protocol. Um, the other ones are a little bit fiddly in terms of transferring to the kind of required tube to be spun down, uh, therefore potentially posing that risk of, of infection if it hasn't been handled correctly. Um, I think with the uh, intention of the centrifugation and the way uh, that the, the device is kind of manufactured, um, certainly backed up by uh, the, the testing they've been able to prove in the lab, they, they can correlate a very specific value for the amount of platelets that are actually achieved uh, in that process. And I, I think that's very reassuring from a kind of science evidence-based background. And yes, there's evidence still that uh, we're not sure about. And I mean, in the last year or two, there's been a, a prolific run of obviously more, more studies and the usual throwaway line at the end of it is that, you know, more studies should be done looking into, you know, further evidence behind it. Um, but I think it's very reassuring that, uh, you know, the Allocuro uh, team have actually got 
good scientific data behind their process compared to some of the other ones. Yeah. Did you want to add anything to that, Helen? I know you and I had some discussions on the phone and you were getting really technical. Yeah. Some of it went over my head, to be perfectly honest, um, <laughs> in terms of the differences, the number of platelets that are in the mixture, um, the sort of tubes that you're using. I know there's like a, like a gel or some component that helps separate these things. I'm a little bit... Uh, <clears throat> ignorant on this, to be honest with you. So maybe if I am, I'm sure other people are too. So do you, any more detail you want to go into with that? Yeah, look, and look, that was a great description by Philip of the, of the process. Thank you. Um, I guess the big difference with Alicuro is uh, it's all down to, well, there are a number of different parts of our protocol that help achieve a really high platelet collection efficiency, right? So we start off with a number of platelets in the sample they can't be created. So anyone who, any company that says they can create more than, a, they have more than 100% of the platelets that were in the whole blood sample, well, there's something wrong with their maths and yeah. wrong with their statistics, <laughs> right? So nothing's ever going to be 100%. And some of those studies, unfortunately, do say greater than 100% platelet collection efficiency. I don't even know how they got published. But anyway, <laughs> so um, we start off with the platelets uh, in, a, in the anticoagulated blood sample. And then our aim is to have as many of those platelets protected, kept, keep, kept in like a healthy resting phase and have as many of them as possible collected in our syringe of the PRP injectate that will actually be injected into the patient. So Alicuro has maybe about uh, sort of 10 different parts of our process that assist that high platelet collection efficiency. And we have multiple pathology testings. We're accepted for many clinical trials. It's externally validated by those researchers as well that show that we have at least 90% platelet collection efficiency of the platelets that we started off with from the blood collection from the patient. Inside the syringe, they actually get uh, the injectate that will actually be delivered to the target site. So as we increase platelet dose, we increase the volume of growth factors uh, to the target site. And we know from published evidence, multiple laboratory studies and in vivo uh, and in vitro testing, that as the volume of growth factors increase, so does the regeneration potential and so, so then does the uh, positive beneficial outcome for the patient. So where Alicuro differs is that we don't actually need a Fixotropic gel separating medium. So that's the gel material that's in the blood tube type of PRP. Um, and that fixotropic gel separating medium is a buoyant um, material that actually allows the red blood cells to be captured below the material and the other cellular components above it, including the plasma. However, that only works if the platelets are in a resting phase. So once platelets uh, are activated, they clump together and they become a far larger and heavier clump of platelets rather than a single isolated platelet. And the density gradient separation physics, which is what we all, every single PRP company uses to isolate a PRP sample, that only works when the platelets are in a resting phase because they are at a very specific density and their density is heavier than acellular plasma, but they are lighter than all of the leukocytes and they are lighter than the red blood cells. So only when they're uh, resting, non-activated, do we have the ability to capture them. And so we have multiple parts of our process to maintain them in a resting phase and that's one of the secrets of how we get to our high platelet collection efficiency. And then 
with our PRP collection process, we see visibility to the platelet layer every single time. So Philip would have seen this many times. You watch the platelets collect together into a very narrow mm. diameter and you're able to finesse uh, basically how much plasma you want to include above the platelet layer. Um, and then you also have the stop point um, of whether you want to collect leukocytes, this thing at the base of the platelets, or or not. So, um, and so this is what we employ across the various procedure areas we support. So, say uh, a knee joint PRP has a different recipe to say a um, uh, so to an, an active acne PRP or a chronic wound infection PRP. Right. Um, so it's the visibility and the ability for us to finesse the PRP recipe. I guess is what sets Alligator apart. So. Yeah, breaking this down for dummies like for, yeah, yeah. Well, sort of, but for, for dummies like me and so, David. So traditionally, and I've done PRP in the past. You, you have your blood tube, red blood cells all compressed to the bottom through the centrifuging yeah. process, um, and then the plasma above it, either with a gel layer or without. And how do you know that the the platelets within that plasma are evenly distributed, or or or, the, or are they assumed to not be? So what do you do with that plasma once you've sucked it up and got it in a syringe and you're about to inject? How do you know that it's got platelets in there, I guess is my question. Yeah. It's because um, so with a blood tube kind of PRP, you never see the platelets unless they clump together and they're often in a strand if they clump together, Yeah, which probably not going to get collected. And if they do get collected, they probably can't be pushed through a 32-gauge needle. Yeah. Um, with Alicuro, it's really hard without a video to demonstrate, sorry, <laughs> but you actually see the platelets. You see them every single time. Oh, right, you watch okay. them collect. They're visible. They're in front of you. They're right in front of you, and you're going to watch them transfer. <clears throat> so they become an opaque, uh, dense cream layer. Right, okay? right. There's a clear yellow plasma, ideally, a dense, creamy, uh, very opaque layer, then packed red blood cells. Okay. That's using the absolute best of density grading physics. Yes. Yeah. And sorry, and I was going to say. you watch them collect. So traditionally, yeah. you said already that platelet-rich is termed at least three times the, the, the baseline layer of um, or, or concentration of platelets. So what, what is yeah. your rough multiple for the Allocura system? Is it much more than that? Yes, it is. So we can, um, as long as we have all of the platelets, we've captured all of the platelets, so let's say we've, the aim is to collect uh, 90% of the platelets that so were in the whole blood sample. Yeah. So we have all those platelets, and then we can choose how many mils of plasma that to be distributed through. Mm -hmm. We get to change the recipe, okay? Yeah. So let's say if we um, say in aesthetics, if we were just if the patient said, I only want my periorbital and my perioral area done. I don't want anything else touched on my face. Yeah. Well, if we collected our normal protocol, which might be four or five mils of PRP, you physically can't deploy that volume into those target sites, right. not safely and not with minimal downtime. So in that scenario, we would say, actually, we only want the platelets in two mils of PRP or yeah. three mils of PRP because that's the maximum we can inject. There's no point leaving any in the syringe because that's going to go in the bin and it's going to have no benefit to the patient. Yeah. So we can customise the volume that those platelets are captured within okay. to the target treatment plan for the patient. Mm. So maybe I could... Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. I'm sorry, Dave, you got yeah. a question. I was just going to say, if anyone's wondering why... 
Helen, who is representing Alacuro in a sort of a business development kind of role, I just wanted to point out you're also qualified as a diagnostic radiographer. So if anyone's saying, why does Helen sound so smart? You've actually, <laughs> you've actually got some tra- training in that background. So I just thought I'd mention that. Sorry. No, that's awesome. No, and you're doing great, Helen, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. and, and I have I have done this solely for nine years yes. and worked with some of Australia's best and some international clinicians who, yeah. like we're all learning all the time, okay? Yeah. You know, we learn every day. Yeah. So, Helen, you've already told us that you basically got this soup of growth factors and we're learning every day that there's more and more and we don't maybe know how they work. But I I wonder if I can get Philip's sort of take on that because, you know, you're a dermatologist and, you know, you you obviously done more skin training than any of us. So how do you, I, I guess, explain to your patients, but also personally understand what's happening with the PRP once it's in the skin? Yeah, well, certainly I, I think, um, as stated, having that kind of uh, data that uh, Alicuro is certainly for all the, the training process, they've got a, a nice summary of all the latest data that they've been able to provide that will back up what they're doing. And, and as uh, Helen mentioned, uh, there are own blood tests from various pathology centres that can actually show you the evidence in terms of that capture for the platelet uh, amount and count. Um, certainly, the the main issue for a lot of the patients is really patient selection. So you're trying to make sure that what you're doing for that patient is going to be the most appropriate for them at that time point. You know, if you've got someone that's, you know, extremely sun damaged, extremely aged skin, you know, they're wanting the, you know, fantastic improvement in terms of, you know, suppleness and and a little bit of that kind of dermal remodeling. Obviously, they're not going to necessarily see as much of that as you will with some of the younger patients that have much more of a scaffolding already for that that skin and you're more augmenting and and kind of highlighting what the, the background already has um, certainly the the idea that you know platelets so this kind of um, capture of all these proteins you know the vascular endothelial growth factor insulin growth factor all the ones that Helen mentioned before and amongst others um, you know there's there's good data around in terms of how that will implicate certainly in the lab environment for cellular differentiation mitogenesis angiogenesis um, and I think for me, it's certainly on a, on a clinical aspect, I'm not really a big seller of, of any of the procedures I do. Um, you know, I get my patients in front of me, you know, treating them on a case-by-case basis, you know, individualizing their approach. Uh, and I think for, for me, it certainly uh, speaks volumes for the fact that I have patients that will undergo these sort of treatments and actually be willing and able to come back time and again, noticing that improvement. Um, you know, certainly some of the chronic conditions, it can be quite difficult in terms of some of the rosacea patients, uh, obviously, the acne scarring, those that will have subtle inflammatory acne that's coming and going, even whether it be adult onset or, or delayed flare after they've come off certain therapies. Uh, and the idea that we're almost trying to modulate some of that drive that, that's there, particularly when we talk about facial skin, which uh, has such a, an impact on, on cosmesis. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, certainly the other argument is, you know, if we're seeing some of that difference when you're doing the injections and they're feeling something going on, clearly there is obviously some chemical componentry to it. So I don't think it's just kind of snake oil and charm that, uh, these things are being done for the sake of it. And then we're hoping for the best, um, Certainly in my clinic, uh, for the majority of patients, we've obviously got the before and after photos and, and being able to document that change, um, you know, better for, for general skin purposes, but for some of the melasma patients, you know, acne scarring, you know, scars post-surgery, they're trying to fine-tune, minimize and get that to blend into the background. Uh, the idea that we've got, you know, anti-inflammatory approaches, we've got stuff like the silicon gels for the scars. Uh, we may come along and, you know, do control damage with the physical therapies like the laser and, and that kind of resurfacing. Uh, 
but then you've got that aspect where you've got your immune healing cascade and your body will be doing that normally with platelet activation internally, but you've come along with a you know an increased amount, so you're augmenting that that body's ability to do that. And I think certainly it shows good evidence, at least in my clinical practice. Um, uh, a bit difficult, I think, for for private clinicians like myself to to be able to to pump out data and you know do certain studies and audits and all that unless we've got research assistants hanging around. But certainly, at some point, uh, probably would make sense for for me to be able to produce that data and and, and allow that to be you know, shared around like some of the other researchers do. Yeah. I'm curious, um, Philip, your patient selection, obviously you want to make sure that the treatment outcome is in line with the patient's expectations and the pathology that you're presented with. I know that Jake yeah. and I have had some, we had a sort of a discussion around some treatments you were doing early on and you you were telling me you, you took some blood from a patient, you spun it up and it looked like Coca-Cola and then the patient advised they'd had a big weekend and they were probably on a, a few <laughs> few bits and pieces that might have uh, yeah. that might have had a bit of yeah. an influence on the color of the blood. And so my question to you, Philip, is you know how much does patient selection um, not in, not not only in terms of the clinical endpoint that you're looking to achieve, but also you know their baseline health, you know what their diet, their healthy weight range. Do they go out and you know on the on the terps every night? I mean, how do how do you sort of how do you select this patient? What and what is a good patient? And, and what are the things that can go wrong if you're not someone that's of optimal health in terms of expectations of outcomes? Yeah, I think one of the, the main things is you don't want to have someone that's, you know, got the, the the more specific kind of relative contraindications or specific contraindications like an autoimmune disorder that's uncontrolled, you know, yep. the theory being that their immune system is going to go haywire and you're going to come along and traumatize, insult the immune system and it's going to, you know, do something weird and wonderful, flare things up. Um, the idea of obviously making sure that, you know, what their desired outcome for, for what they want to have treated, you know, there's no point doing PRP for someone that's got, you know, such, you know, severe sun damage with actinic keratosis all over the place and, you know, deep wrinkles, lines and a whole bunch of acne scarring and expect them to, to, to be looking fantastic. They're, those are the patients that PRP is certainly an adjunct. You're going to be looking at things like your physical lasers, you know, your resurfacing approaches with chemical peels and all the other stuff, you know, treating the background sun damage, all that um, if they've got uncontrolled inflammatory disorders like a, a bad psoriasis or an eczema, obviously you don't want to be doing any treatments in and around those zones unless you get that under control. Um, when it comes to you know diet lifestyle factors, uh, they certainly get given a, a good rundown uh, pro forma sheet uh, well before they're actually booked in for the procedure to go through. It talks about you know trying to avoid or minimize things like your antiplatelet drugs, your aspirin, your nurofen, those sort of things. Um, obviously, trying to avoid alcohol and, and all that sort of aggressive stuff leading up to, to actually having the blood draw. Um, if there's been any recent infections, even if it's a minor head cold, again, it's the idea that you know your immune system's been under the pump. You know they're not going to be an ideal candidate necessarily. Um, even minor infections can affect your white blood cells, leukocytes, and platelet activity. So for them, you know they need to call up and defer. Um, and yeah, we certainly get patients that turn up on the day and we say, look, you know, because of X, Y, and Z, you need to be rebooked in. So um, I think if, if they're going to be coming in doing something that, you know, is still a procedure, it's not as invasive as some, but it's still invasive, uh, they're paying for the cost of it. You certainly want to make sure that they're maximizing their, their benefit and the outcome that we're, we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, you mentioned some of the other uh, cells, like the white blood cells, neutrophils, etc., can you know be in the plasma. I'm assuming they're small enough to 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 be in that plasma. So, do they have a role, either good or bad, when when injected? 
Uh, certainly, Helen's got a, a, bit, a bit, certainly, I think, to say on this in terms of some of the other forms of, of the PRP, particularly when they talk about, like, you know, leukocyte poor, leukocyte rich, etc. Um, I think for for the aesthetic aspect, my understanding is when it comes to stuff like the red blood cells, it's not too much of an impact. But when it comes to things like the joint disease, if they've got, a, you know, a single red blood cell that's injected into a joint, that's mm. not a good idea in terms of that inflammatory cascade. So, um, I think certainly not to the, the negative that they see for some conditions. Um, uh, I think uh, from the science behind it is really more the, the kind of growth factors, um, you know, affecting that, you know, MAP kinase pathways and all that sort of thing that we're really looking at with platelet activation rather than leukocytes alone. Yeah. Um, obviously, that coming back to that idea of a can, good candidate, if you think about your plasma, um, and that's the idea when you're decanting it, you're getting that kind of centrifugation, you're taking, when you're doing the collection, initially the plasma alone, and then you see the buffy coat come through with your platelet. Uh, you perhaps may have some, you know, drugs in the system, your... Um, uh, you know, the blood tests that they're, they're looking at, things like cholesterol, that's obviously that's contained within the plasma amount. Uh, so I guess the, the negative is we don't necessarily have good data to show how much of an impact those things may be making, good or bad, when it comes to uh, use of platelet. Yeah. Um, Any yeah. other comments on that, Helen? Yeah, look, that's all. I agree with all of that 100%. Um, and we, we, quite interesting when you see a patient perhaps uh COVID was a really good example so some people who may have actually been on a oftentimes PRP is provided as part of a serial treatment either two or three treatments four weeks apart usually um but of course this can be adjusted per clinic but um sometimes when the patients had had a prior PRP and then they came back for their repeat or they may have had delay it slightly because of COVID um, and we actually can see or if they've had a period of ill health, you know, massive stress, dieting, calorie restriction, um, we actually see a much lower uh, what appears to be a smaller volume of platelets, okay? So now not every platelet is exactly the same size. Um, they get recycled by the body every seven to ten days. So the platelets that uh, there's – and there's always – Light, low density platelets and high density platelets always. But when the patient has been unwell, we do tend to see a lot, a far greater percentage of the low density platelets. So they've got less growth factors in them. They're not as filled up and ready to go for regeneration. Yeah. Um, and so it's quite, it's quite interesting. And so we can often say to the patients, um, you know, uh, tell me what's been going on or whatever. And um, and you often gain some really meaningful insights. Similarly, from a cholesterol testing point of view, um, if so, we the, the plasma is like is going to contain whatever is circulating in the blood at that time of the blood collection. So, if the patient has just been to KFC and had a <laughs> you know a mega meal <laughs> an hour beforehand, well, we are very likely to see those lipids in the plasma. So some, uh, ideally, we want the patient to be on a low-fat diet. We want a crystal clear plasma so we can have beautiful visibility to our platelets. But sometimes you'll see the plasma will be opaque. It'll actually be almost the density of uh, milk. I think know? that's like exactly the, what happened to me with this patient a few years ago. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So now, um, so I know of three instances um, that have been part of training and this is explained to the you know, the clinician. Um, and so then 
Normal protocol would be ask the patient what do they just have for their last meal. <laughs> if they haven't had a high-fat meal, then so say, have you had your cholesterol checked recently? Yeah. And there have actually been three patients who have had a cholesterol of over 7.5 mm, oh, wow. who were undiagnosed and were commenced on statins immediately. Yeah. So yes. the PRP, for whatever they, were, they weren't having it done for a, uh, a medical reason, uh, it did, we did get phone calls from the doctors afterwards that were saying it was very useful. Um, it's a good screening patient. check for high so. triglycerides and cholesterol then. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's, a, it's immediate. Yeah, but we don't know whether it's good fat or bad fat. I'm not saying all fat's bad. Like they could have had avocado yeah. and cashew butter you yeah. know, um, for breakfast. But it, it, is, it is quite interesting. But, yeah, look, you know, the thing is, as Philip said, the patients are paying for this. It hurts a little bit. They could have a little bit of swelling for a day. You know, why not optimise that outcome for them as much as possible? So the, there is some buy-in for the patient. We do expect some patient responsibility to, um, like, even, Definitely. you know, high caffeine affects platelet reactivity. Um, you know, a good sleep the night before affects circadian rhythm, affects, helps platelet reactivity. Um, and, you know, we're obviously trying to minimise in aesthetics, trying to minimise bruising risk. So, you know, we want moth, garlic, ginkgo, bohova, fish oils, all of the things that raise uh, the risk of bruising and lymphatic uh, leaks. So we do try to, I guess, support the clinics with as much information on this as possible because it, do, it really does make a difference, you know, for the patient, it makes a difference. Yeah. So if we can get on to some of the indications and, and, and keeping it really for, for skin and, and we'll come on to hair because I know you specialize in that, yes. Philip. What exactly should injectors be thinking about or, or what, what indications should patients be expecting? Because it's quite a subtle treatment uh, to my understanding. Um, the only analogy I can give is that I'm now using a lot of Profilo, which is sort of a, a bio-remodeler. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the results are really subtle, but the patient notices it. Sometimes I can't even see from a before and after what, what the tangible differences are, but the patient can sometimes feel it, but maybe not see it. So from a PRP perspective, what do we mean by skin improvement, skin rejuvenation? Like, what what are the outcomes that you're looking for, Philip? And how do you address that in a consultation to set the expectation? Yeah, so uh, certainly textural improvement, uh, the suppleness of the skin, the idea that they tend to be looking and feeling more hydrated, uh, tolerability when it comes to certain products with their topical routine regimens, whether it be a topical retinoid, a vitamin C, any of the kind of you know acid-based uh, products. Um, I, certainly a lot of the patients will be commenting that that will be what they're experiencing thereafter once they've gone through the rounds of the PRP. And as Helen indicated, you know, my practice is certainly to be intending to do three in a row, four weeks apart, um, and then the option to look at repeat treatments down the track if clinically necessary. Um, the idea of kind of poor appearance, so widened pores for someone that may be acne prone, um, if they've got kind of, you know, subtle variability in terms of kind of acne scars, uh, they're the patients that certainly do feel a fair bit of improvement. Um, you've obviously got that kind of shorter term effect that they've kind of gotten over the initial downtime, redness, swelling. They feel a little bit plumper because there has been some kind of partial volumization in the skin. Mm. Obviously, that's very temporary. Uh, but by four to six weeks afterwards, there, there should be some uh, kind of perceived benefits. And certainly from, from documented uh, photographs, we can see that. Uh, pigmentation, 
not necessarily something I'd, I'd um, bang on about for those patients, but I do find a, a certain subset that have gone through the process to, to use the topical approaches when it comes to things like melasmal or post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Um, they may be, you know, post-laser for some of that, and, and we're doing it as an adjunct to help kind of improve the um, the kind of stability of the skin cells, if you will. So melanocytic activity, we would expect to be under the same influence for any other of the keratinocytes or bulge follicles when, uh, when it comes to the effect of the platelets uh, and the, the growth factors. So um, I guess if you've got a patient that's got terrible scarring, you might do a treatment. There might be some subtle improvement in maybe a little bit of a bit of a glow or they may feel a little bit smoother perhaps and tolerate some products afterwards, but that scarring is not going to be drastically different. They, they definitely need to be looking at that combined approach or other modalities and then look at PRP down the track as an adjunct or a, a tidy up approach. Mm. Um, yeah. What's your sort of treatment protocol in terms of how many treatments, how long in between treatments is recommended in terms of seeing results or changes when should patients expect that i'm, I'm assuming you're going to have different sort of answers depending on the patient and, and the, oh, and the area yeah but just in general yes. terms i guess so for, for for most patients it will be after that second round of treatment that they should actually be seeing a difference and uh, if you think about cellular return over cellular control, you know, the idea that skin cells, for example, you know, every you know, 21 to 28 days, they're turning over, regenerating. Um, you see conditions like psoriasis, obviously increased cell turnover, thickened scaling, redness, all that. That kind of makes sense in, in, in a clinical aspect. Um, if you've done something, got that platelet activation making an impact, you're going to get that over two, three, four weeks worth, and then you're doing a second round, and then that's kind of back-to-back -back close together. By that kind of third to fourth month, we really should be seeing some clinical improvement in what you're after. Um, as I indicated before, I, I do feel they really should be looking at you know three in a row, about four weeks apart. Um, long enough for some of them to forget the kind of sensation and pain and remember, you know, forget what they went through the last session, uh, but short enough that they're doing that kind of you know back-to-back -to, -back to, to garner as much improvement as possible. Um, I mean, if you're unwell and you need to defer, then you know, extra couple of weeks here or there is probably not going to be the worst. But you know, if we've got someone that books in and you know, they're a little bit kind of indifferent, they can come back again six months afterwards and you know, oh, we'll do it properly, we'll do another round and you know, they're a bit ad hoc with it, certainly they're not going to really be an ideal candidate in improvement. Um, so you kind of do have to have, as Helen indicated, that kind of patient commitment and, and be involved in the care for their own skin in that regard. Can I ask, um, it, let's talk about just skin improvement generally, not not for acne, not, not for anything yeah, specific. Yeah. What, what's yeah. your actual yep. method? Are you needling little blebs? Are oh, you yeah. using a cannula to yeah, fan it through? So How do you do it? it it'll be... I, I do prefer the multi-pin injector for the the kind of global face treatment, as I as I tell the patients. Um, the intention there is you're getting you know micro aliquots directly into that intradermal space, um, very well tolerated. Uh, most of the time, it's a five-pin uh, multi-injector. Uh, I do have others that are a nine or a sixteen-pin. Um, the intention there is kind of covering the whole face as a whole, not worrying too much about a bit of an overlap. Uh, and generally, you can get a, uh, a kind of a yield of that, you know, four and a half to five mils of, of PRP from the, the Allocura device to actually treat that whole face, even down to kind of angle of jawline. Um, we do get some patients that will be keen to treat kind of neck uh, decolletage as well. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, in that case, we might draw up, you know, two amounts. So we've got kind of the face and the neck decolletage. It's two separate areas and it can be all done on the same day um, as long as they tolerate it. Um, the uh, kind of injector that we have uh, is a handheld uh, injector. So it's, you know, quite specific in terms of how much it's kind of uh, pushing out each time. So it's very precise. Uh, the idea of the, the freehand injections certainly more described for when you're treating areas like hair in the older days with the PRP protocols, where you put a little bleb every one centimetre and, you know, you're kind of reliant on, you know, where the needle is sitting, the angle, you know, your pressure, the actual needle device. Um, so that's the other thing that I quite like about the Alacura protocol, you know, um, they provide all the, the the device instruments and the, the multi-pin for that. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're doing the freehand for kind of tear troughs, periorbital, the lateral canthus, perioral area, that's more of a the freehand, particularly with a cannula. So I'll usually use a 27-gauge um, cannula, sometimes smaller, uh, depending on, on obviously tolerability. Um, and we're kind of very small aliquots and doing almost like a retrograde injection to, to just see that slight flushed effect and just feel there's a little bit of kind of um, injection going into that area. You don't want to kind of plume them right up. And uh, as Helen said, there is a limit to how much you'd want to be treating certain areas, particularly that tear trough and periorbital area, be a bit be cautious about it. Yeah. Mm. Um, generally, not much bruising. They often will have a, a pinpoint red you know, a bit of blood sitting on the surface after you've uh, removed the, the needle from that area. Um, by the time you come across and treated a whole face, usually I do kind of forehead first and right face and then left face and the nurse will kind of follow on and uh, kind of dab away in the areas that are, are more of a, a prominent weeping with a bit of pressure. Uh, but we try not to do too much during the process. Uh, once it's completed, uh, then I often use a little bit of the remainder of the plasma that's left in the device uh, after we've kind of uh, decanted it to then gently clean up the face, mm. uh, try not to be too traumatic. And that way they kind of leave looking like they've had something done, but they're not horribly pinpoint bleeding like they do with some of the, <laughs> the aggressive resurfacing lasers. Yeah. yeah. Um, before we move on to hair, I might just ask a question that one of our uh, II patrons has sent in. Her name is Michelle Christmas. She's from the United States. She actually joined us recently on a podcast talking yeah. about Incasa. Hi, Michelle. Um, she sent in a question around PIP, PRP being used as a combination therapy uh, with uh, hyaluronic acid. Um, have you sort of ex- experimented with that before? Do you think there's any, any case to be made for there the being some merit in that? And, and if so, what, what's your protocol? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, again, the idea of kind of a multimodal approach nowadays, I think we've gone away from the idea of only ever treating people with one process and then looking at another and another over a stage. Um, you know, I do a lot of other treatments here in the clinic uh, and not uncommon for me to, to do a combination of, of different physical therapies. I've got, you know, non-ablative and ablative lasers, you know, the heel lights, um, you know, chemical peels, you know, um, uh, I think there is a role for doing the PRP and the HA. The difficulty, obviously, is if you're having it in the same device, uh, you're, you're going to be limited in terms of which choice of the, the hyaluronic acid you're using in terms of being able to get that to extrude out of the needle points. Um, you know, there's no point in having a very heavy, dense you know, HA that you can't really inject out. Um, whether or not uh, you know, you're doing that as a filler and then, PRP completely separate or having it combined. Uh, I have tried uh, on multiple occasions a bit of the, the skin boosters, the, the really you know low G prime, um, 
that I do think uh, has a very good role for specific targeted scar-like areas. Um, so we get some of the patients, they may have done a fair bit for, for global acne scarring, and there may be a few that are really deep trough-like scars um, and, you know, kind of highlighting those areas with a freehand needle or cannula technique with both PRP and the filler, uh, often combining with a, a bit of minor subcision actually does very well in my eye. Um, the other argument is uh, obviously kind of post-surgical scars where you may have some of these that get this kind of hypertrophic keloid and then some that get a kind of atrophic or a widened scar. Um, certainly, again, combining that with other modalities like the, the ablative lasers to tidy up, smooth out the raised areas and you come along a bit of filler and PRP to, to kind of get a leveling out effect and really blend that scar as much as possible. So certainly I don't, I wouldn't say I do that all the time, but uh, there are definitely cases that I will combine the, the HA and the PRP together. What about mixing it with toxin? We've had a dermatologist on from Thailand called Dr. Rungsima and she does, you know, what she calls microtoxin over the whole face. So what about maybe mixing it with toxin for a similar, yeah. I guess, rejuvenative uh, effect? Yep. Yeah, definitely uh, well described. I certainly do like the idea of the micro-Botox and do a fair bit of that myself. Um, I, I'm a big fan of that, particularly in that kind of lower face neckline. Um, and yeah, I do think there there's a good role for the PRP there, I guess, because of the, the lack of good you know, statistical data, uh, when we're talking about it with patients, we can't necessarily say, look, you know, there were 150 plus patients treated this manner and, you know, they had this outcome compared to, to doing one or the other on its own. Um, I think there certainly a lot of the, the listeners um, and, um, you know, the cosmetic you know, aestheticians worldwide will certainly agree that uh, a lot of patients, if they're, they're doing something, they're usually keen on, on a combined approach, particularly when it comes to the injectables uh, and the fillers. Um, so not, not uncommon for us to do both the PRP and the, the Botox. Uh, again, in terms of mixing it up in the same device, I, I don't think there's a, a, an issue with that uh, for the, the Botox. Um, you certainly don't have any of the issues compared to the filler when it's talking about the extrusion. Um, I guess the, the fear factor perhaps is, you know, the stability uh, over time. If you've got any, maybe um, the idea of some migration of the toxin and, you know, how much is actually getting into certain areas based on a bit of extra trauma from the, the needling PRP in one zone compared to another. Uh, so maybe being a little bit cautious uh, with the dosing of the toxin and, and watching maybe for some asymmetrical effect. Mm, yeah. Fair enough. Now, I do want to address mm. the elephant in the room, the awkward question, because, you know, I've, I've had this experience myself and this is very anecdotal. I know there are many injectors who I know who love PRP. Um, you know, we've yeah. had Cat Stone on, we did some podcasts with her, but why do you think that so many injectors and I guess patients have been underwhelmed in the past, not saying with the Allocura system, but just generally with PRP as a modality? What, what, what's your take on that? Uh, look, I do think there is, there's, there's surely to be a, a small proportion that are just not going to get any of the desired benefit that we see for whatever reason, mm. you know, individual genetics, you know, chemical composition of them as, as an individual. Um, but again, I think it does come down to uh, kind of the, the patient selection for what they're aiming to have treated. Um, and then, you know, the quality of, of their skin and, and what you're, you're looking at. Um, and I've had some patients that have, you know, 
come in, you know, three, even four treatments afterwards and, and, and had no real improvement. Uh, marginal, yes, on documentation. And to some extent, it's nice for us to say, well, at least we can see something. But compared to other patients, you know, it certainly hasn't been enough. And, and for those, obviously, we're not going to sell them and keep them on the, on the protocol if it's not something they're keen on. Yeah. Um, particularly with some of the hair patients, they can be a little bit of a difficult case scenario because you, you're dealing with a scenario that may be, you know, a certain condition, but very common to see overlap scenarios with things like telogen effluvium and androgenetic alopecia, alopecia areata, you know, the list goes on. Um, so not always are you going to have a single diagnosis in that scenario. Uh, and you may have one pathway that's adequately affected and there may be overlap with something else. So um, yeah, I think uh, you know, difficulty with, with some protocols in terms of what they've harvested and whether they're actually getting a, enough of a benefit clinically, uh, but also patient selection, again, is really key. Yeah. yeah. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Helen? Yeah, look, I agree with all of that. And um, the thing is, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on inside every single patient, you know, <laughs> particularly with hair loss. It'd be great it's, if we did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like there's a myriad of, of influence, influencing factors, you know. You might sort out one, but um, it doesn't mean you're actually going to resolve all of the issues because that's why they've got the pathological presentation in the first place. Um, I guess what we find with the feedback that we have um, from clinicians, particularly who changed over to Allocuro from alternative providers um, of PRP devices, is um, they find far more consistent results mm. and far more predictability in terms of discussing expectations with patients. So, And we believe there's multiple uh, reasons for that. But primarily, it's down to the platelet dose. So all the regeneration, as I said before, comes from the platelet release growth factors. So increase the growth factors to the target site by increasing the platelet dose, then we increase the regeneration potential for that patient. So we've, we've supplied the potential. Whether it translates to the desired outcome, there may be something else influencing it. If it doesn't actually uh, work as expected, but realistically, you have to know um, people should be knowing what platelet dose they are injecting. It's like delivering a medication. So let's say if you were delivering um, the target zone needed 100 units of anti-wrinkle, but if you only put 10 units of anti-wrinkle in, you couldn't possibly expect to get to the outcome that the 100 units delivered. So it's the same with platelet dose. So Say so with Alacura, we know from there's been you know hundreds or many many hundreds of samples tested. Some of the clinics actually test every single patient's procedure with pathology, and they document it in the report. Some of the radiology practices do that for some high level procedures. Um, so they record the platelet dose as a me- medication delivered to the patient. Yeah. So with with Alacura, if you do starting for thirty mils of blood um, or anticoagulant blood. The average would be between 4.7 to 5 billion platelets delivered that are captured inside the syringe that get injected. So you've got the platelets there, but you also have to get it to the right target site. Okay. So for skin rejuvenation, the target cell is the dermal fibroblast because it controls the health of the extracellular matrix. So if we pour PRP on the skin and think it's going to get to the dermal fibroblast, like that's not going to happen. Well, very, very few of them will actually get there. So people who solely microneedle in PRP and only go into, say, 0.5 of a millimetre, the dermal fibroblasts in the face are located between reticular papillary dermis, so we have to get to that zone. 
so at least like 1.2 to 1.5 millimeters below the skin surface. Also, if we actually inject too deep and we're, we're subdermal, the growth factors just don't spread everywhere. Like they, they work locally. Yeah. Um, so it's all about having the platelets and knowing what to do with them and on the right patient. And then also post-procedure care instructions. You know, all of these things might make a 1% or 2% difference, 5% difference, but you add them all up and it becomes a sizable and, and documentable difference for the patient. Yeah. And like as, as a clinician, there should be a response, you know, it's a responsibility to make sure that the patient's paying for a procedure, that you're actually delivering the procedure according to the scientific principles, not just pulling some plasma out of a blood tube and hoping for the best that there's some platelets in there and injecting it or pouring on the skin and whatever. The, you know? Yeah, that, that was actually yeah. my biggest kind of issue with say. it, not with the Alacura because I've never used it, but, you know, you have no idea what you've really got in your, in your um, you know, is it th- yeah. three times, four times, nine times? There was no way of checking. So you couldn't even talk about you know efficacy or dose um and Correct. you know as an injector you know mainly using toxins and fillers those results are very tangible both to the patient and the practitioner so yep. when the results are either subtle or indeed not there it's frustrating for both you know the patient paying the money but also the injector so yep. you know even if yep. i had a toxin failure rate of one in a hundred i would feel very uncomfortable offering toxin again because i'd never know you know, which one's not going to work. So, you know, for from my experience of PRP years ago, I, you know, I haven't done it in many years, I sort of was never sure, you know, what that hit rate was going to be. And so that that's what put me off. But I, I like your approach. I like yeah, sort of, you, you know, being a bit more specific about your layer, your technique. You know that there's at least 90% uh, platelets, et cetera. So it, it's good. It's, it's interesting. Do you want to add yeah, to that? Just coming back to... The end of uh, what Helen was saying, certainly with the patients, I mean, at the end of the day, you can do everything that you do in the room, uh, but if they go out and they're, you know, severely, you know, sun damaging their skin again at the beach, you know, they're not <laughs> looking after things, you know, they're not doing your, your skincare routine, even if it's not just a simple process, but, um, you know, they're not really going to garner the benefit that, you know, we're hoping they're going to get and that they're hoping. And it's not a magical wand. It's not the panacea for everyone. Um, it's not a kind of set and forget and you're, you know, you're back to a, you know, beautiful, youthful baby face. For, for the next 10 years before you do another round. You know, it's certainly not that and uh, we don't want it to be or certainly yeah. I don't want it to be sold like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, the idea of things like, you know, your smoker's lines areas they talk about, you know, they may get improvement, but then if they're still smoking, you know, their diet's poor, <laughs> they're, you know, they're out, you know, on a mine site, you know, 12 hours a day in the, in the blaring sun, they're not really going to get that benefit that uh, yeah. the other patients will be, Yeah. I feel we kind of do this to ourselves as an industry. This new treatment comes out. It gets all this hype. Everyone's really excited yeah. about it. It's going to, you know, it's going to deliver earth shattering results. Some celebrity says it's great. They put it on their Instagram and all of a sudden you've got this poor product that's just come onto the market that we're expecting miracles from. And then when it doesn't yep. deliver, we just throw it in the bin. It's like, well, <laughs> surely there has to be a halfway point where we go, let's not, let's not get too excited. Let's study this. Let's get our treatment protocols you know, tried and tested. Maybe we need to. Maybe we need to adjust something. Maybe we need to be more specific with our patients. It just feels like we're like kids. We don't really grow up. We just find the new toy. This is great. When it doesn't work, we throw it in the bin. So I find these discussions really useful yeah. because I think PRP did have a lot of hype. There was a lot of excitement around it. Then there was a lot of disappointment, and it's almost like we've had to yeah. come, you know, full do circle. a full circle to come back and go. Okay, well, the technology does have 
does have uh, merit. It does have value. We just need to do it differently. We need to be more specific. We need to be more scientific about it. Mm. Just need to slow down. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And figure out what, what the hell we're doing. What do you think, Jake? No, I, I completely agree, which is why I'm revisiting the <laughs> yeah. topic. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll yeah. be happy to try it again with a different spin. So it's interesting. Oh, was that that was a double entendre? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah right. <laughs> oh, thank you, um, Philip. I think there's actually. a lot of people eagerly awaiting your opinion. On yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, <laughs> so, well, let's yeah. do it. We'll, we'll, we'll film it and put yeah. it up, and yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, I want yeah. to ask you, Philip, because you know one of the problems we have as injectors is that. We have this armamentum of stuff, toxin filler, skin boosters, yeah. profilo, PRP, yeah. lasers, threads, monothreads, lifting threads. And you know, when we casually throw around terms like skin rejuvenation or improving mm. laxity, crepiness, these kind of intangibles sometimes, how do you choose or why do you choose PRP versus something else? You know, because there's this debate about you maybe we've overused or over relied on HA fillers. We've stuffed people to the to the max. We've made people look weird, yep. and now we're hopefully entering a new phase where we're thinking more about the skin and the canvas of the face, and you know all the rest of it. So, where does PRP fit into the puzzle versus, say, hyperdilate radius or sculpture or profilo? Like that is the confusion. I think I don't think PRP is the issue. It's just we've got all we've got too many toys to play with, and I don't think we're we're, we're really using the right one at the right time often. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm, you know I'm, I don't get it right every time. And you know, for the the other estheticians and, and cosmetologists, I'm sure that you know they're always you know making sure that they're, they're trying to do the right thing by that patient that's in front of them at the time. Um, on the one hand, it's fantastic having all this stuff that we do have, you know, all the devices, all the processes, all the products. Um, but it definitely can get overwhelming. And I mean, I will see some patients, and they're they're not necessarily fitting a perfect box, and they're kind of after an idea of what they can and can't be doing. You know, we might give them, you know, details and quotes on, you know, a myriad of things, and they walk out of the room a bit confused. And you know, it is hard because we don't want to be telling them didactically this is exactly what you need because that may not be appropriate as the only choice in that case um i guess the, the the draw for me for the prp is the idea that it is autologous you know it's from the patient uh there's nothing certainly for the allocura protocol that we use is there's nothing you know foreign to it at all uh unless you decide to add on stuff that has already had good data behind that like the toxins um the uh, um you know I, I think the intention would be also, data-wise, you know, I've been doing it for, you know, six, maybe seven years now. Uh, Alacura was already around. You know, there was science behind it. Um, you're obviously going to have those early adopters uh, coming back to what we've spoken about before, where you jump on the bandwagon, you think this is going to be fantastic, and you get drawn into the whole, you know, flurry of doing it all. Uh, and then you realize, well, hang on a second, is that actually doing anything? Um, I guess for someone like myself... Uh, slightly bit more conservative about things. It's almost like there has been that established protocol, a bit of established data, being able to actually you know put it into practice with at least some evidence as a back to to support what we do and uh, not just do something that's all charm and snake oil. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's a fear for me as a dermatologist. You know, I see so many patients that get stuff done elsewhere and probably with very good intention, but you know, wrong protocols for that device for that patient or a wrong device selection uh, and having to deal with, you know, complications and problems that they probably could have avoided at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, this sort of ties nicely into, you know, the next part of the discussion, which was about hair loss, because I don't think that uh, there's many, yeah. there's many, in any parts of our industry that have had more sort of spin and hype and broken promises and unrealistic expectations than maybe weight loss pills and diets. Yeah, and then closely yeah. followed by hair, hair restoration. You've yeah. seen hair plugs, you've seen Photoshop stuff, you've seen, you know, spray, spray on hair. Um, you know, yep. skin needling. I mean, it's such a massive industry, especially for men. I know, although, you know, some, for some women as well. So what's your experience like with, you know, PRP for hair? Like what's the history there and, and sort of where do you think we potentially have gone gone wrong and how do you approach it? Um, again, I think it's uh, with the PRP and the hair approach, certainly based on previous older protocols and, and drawabilities and making sure that they've got the right amount of platelets for its effectiveness. Um, the difficulty of the scalp is it's just a bit of a different beast. You know, you can't really adequately anesthetize the area properly. Um, you know, if you do put something topical on, it has to be properly cleaned off before you're injecting through it so you don't affect the platelet uh, activation. Um, you know, you're doing, you know, multiple nerve blocks. We talk about injections above the brows, you know, periauricular, post, uh, you know, post-occipital, you know, just gets a bit too much for the patient to go through that, plus the injections themselves, um, you know, using things like the laughing gas, uh, modified techniques, distraction, little vibration stuff to actually do the process itself. So I think it was fraught with difficulty from the beginning in terms of how effective are you able to do that as a procedure on the day for that patient let alone harvesting and getting the, the benefit from the platelet count itself. Um, the other thing is there's such a myriad of diseases that will be involved with, with hair loss. Uh, obviously, the, the, uh, the standard one they talk about is the androgenetic, you know, the male pattern versus the female pattern hair loss. Um, and, and certainly for the majority of patients that I see and treat, it will be those. Uh, but the telogen effluvium cases, particularly the chronic TE, um, we've got the, the alopecia areatas, we've got the other inflammatory disorders like amplanopilaris and the like. Um, again, patient selection, if they're in a big flare, they're uncontrolled disease, you're coming along doing something that may be traumatic, uh, they're not going to see any benefit to that. And then the, you know, the clinician and the patient's going to say, oh, it didn't work for me and you know, it's not, not useful at all and you know, put it to the side and not say it's going to be worth doing. Um, I would say the, the idea also is making sure that for me, particularly with the androgenetic patients, it's almost an, an adjunct approach. You know, if they're relying on the PRP as the sole treatment, they will likely be disappointed in most cases. Mm. Um, you can never predict how the androgenetic alopecia is going to be. We see some patients, they get a flurry of activity, thinning, thinning density-wise, a bit of regression, and all of a sudden they plateaus. You know, they may sit like that for, for six months. They may like sit like that for a few years before that process then kind of starts again. So the idea is that slow progression, usually years to decades before they're actually getting to the point where they, they may have actual true you know, changes. So the idea for the PRP is getting onto them early. Um, you want to be able to have follicles there that are theoretically viable uh, and not have kind of fibrotic changes, you know, closed up hairs that are never going to be coming back online ever again, regardless whether it be PRP or other modalities we use. Um, I do use a lot of finasteride, a lot of minoxidil, uh, flutamide for females and spironolactone. There's a whole bunch of other, you know, the systemic agents we might use. And then we talk about the topical approach. So using something as a uh, almost like a maintenance impact 
if they're doing PRP, most of my patients really should be doing something else to help kind of uh, keep that ticking over in terms of antigen growth phase, elongation, uh, and stability of that hair follicle drive. Um, same protocol I use uh, in terms of time frame apart. So usually three in a row, four to six months for the hair. Uh, and that's partly based on kind of pain and tolerability. You know, some patients, uh, no matter what we do, they, they will be in a fair bit of discomfort with it. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's quick to do. So they're not tortured for, you know, two hours on the day they're here. Um, but we get some that we do, you know, a little bit of injection, have to give them a quick break, you know, one by one by one. Uh, you get others that you can just crank through and, you know, cover the whole scalp within a 10, 15 minute period uh, and they're out the door. So, so um, to summarize, David, you're well past it. And I get a lot of, there's a lot of patients also, they come in and they say, look, you know, I know I've had it for 10 years of ongoing hair loss and I've got a certain amount of regression. Um, I do tend to biopsy uh, in, in, a, in a fair amount of cases to kind of document what what's activated in terms of their hair loss condition, particularly if there's a question mark with any overlap disease activity. Um, but the other benefit for a sample from the scalp is we can kind of show them that they've got X amount of hairs. Um, on average, there should be, you know, 25 to 30 follicles in a four millimeter punch sample. Uh, there should be a certain pattern, obviously, what they're looking at under the, the microscope, the dermatopathologist that we use, you know, quite experienced in terms of giving us that rundown. Uh, and if they see, you know, 20 hairs, um, you know, a fair bit of fibrotic activity in the background um, and not too much, say, miniaturization, then they're probably not going to see too much difference. But if they've got, you know, 20 hairs, 10 of those are miniaturized, uh, theoretically, it's those hairs that are going to be switching back online and actually get improvement. And it might only be, you know, five of those miniaturized hairs coming back online. Um, so it's not going to be 100% perfect approach for every single patient. Uh, but the luster, the quality, the overall, you know, global appearance, we should be getting that improvement over time. Um, I know a lot of the, the hair transplant surgeons will actually often consider PRP as an adjunct either leading up to the harvesting approach, uh, if not uh, post-procedure to be maintaining that cyclicality of those hairs, particularly in the area where they've done the transplant. I think it's great um, that you do yeah. the, the hair count and the pathology because, you know, a lot of before and afters from maybe injectors, but not derms. It's very hard to yep. sort of say in a before and after, truly, is it better? Is it just mm -hmm. the lighting? Is it the styling of the hair, the angle yep. that it was taken? And yep, uh, definitely. You know, I'm, I'm critical of you know my own before and afters, let alone stuff like that. Oh, but, exactly. I'm the same. Yeah. yeah. But when you've got a hair count, it's definitive. It's, it's better or it's not better. Yeah. So I, I yep. like the way you do that. It's great. Yeah. Um, can we talk about biofilm? Yeah, think? I'd like it, to. I it's know, been a I, bit of a mystery to me, if I'm honest. Yeah, I don't know. You don't want to focus on it too much, Ellen, because I know it, it's still very much in its infancy, and you guys are run off your feet with your existing clients. So no, you don't want 300 million phone calls uh, for biofiller. <laughs> but if just <laughs> if you could just give us you know an idea, what is it? Because you know we are seeing the posts on Instagram. We're seeing people you know making their own filler with with PRP, and there are people asking about it. So could you just give us the I guess the idiot's guide to, un to understanding like what biofiller is. Yeah, sure. Look, so yeah, so uh, the thing is um, a biofiller is a, a term that's coined by Alec Hero to um, describe our protocol, okay? So we've learned uh, enormously from very, very clever scientists around the world and we've basically gathered all a lot of their foundational work in how to change Platelet-poor plasma, so that means plasma 
that has hardly any platelets in it. What Philip described before about we collect some of that to clean the patient down with it at the end of the treatment. Mm. Or if you're a microneedling, you would actually just pour that on the skin and use it as your microneedling glide. But we wouldn't normally inject it because it has very little regenerative value because it doesn't contain many platelets, okay? Like a tiny, maybe 2% of the available platelets are in the in Alicura protocol in that platelet for plasma. So what we're able to do though is within the plasma, there are albumin proteins. And if albumin proteins uh, go undergo a heating and cooling phase cycle that takes 15 minutes, we can actually transform the albumin proteins into a tri-dimensional structure. We can't does it itself and it changes that liquid plasma into a very viscous biomaterial Mm. the consistency of autologous fat if you've ever worked with that um okay but the thing is though what we happen then is that any of the growth factors of regenerative ability with in any of the platelets inside that sample they've actually been destroyed by the heating process so they have often no regenerative value all they offer is volume Mm. restoration so what we do then is we add regenerative potential back into that viscous biomaterial by adding in a really tiny volume but very high platelet dose prp okay so which means at the start you need to have from the patient's whole blood sample i mean the platelets located in a tiny little volume and the rest of the plasma it's just a plate of plasma. So, am I describing this? No, no, no I, I think I've got it. So, is it transparent? Yeah. Is it opaque? It's, um, it's opaque. It's like um, uh, the color of butter. Mm-hmm. Okay, like autologous fat color. Um, so, and it's opaque. Okay. Yeah. And then how much? And, can... and then so we, we we mix we mix the PRP with we get a homogenous dilution of the PRP throughout the each of the plasma albumin gel. Yeah. So, and we do that just prior to injecting, and then we inject it with a, a cannula, a blunted microcannula. We only recommend use of 22-gauge just to minimise the risk of a vascular occlusion. Mm. Um, and it gets injected into the hypodermis wherever the patient needs volume restoration and regeneration. And there are some no-go zones as well. So there's no forehead, glabella, temples, nose, or temples for advanced injectors, but yeah, the central structures yeah. we advise. It's not, a, yeah, don't go there. So Philip, um, I'm assuming you've tried biofiller. So again, why might you choose that versus a traditional filler? I mean, HA, I know, so you I'm, mean HA? Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah an HA yeah, yeah, filler. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously it's autologous <laughs> and, uh, you know, I like the idea of it, but yeah, why would you choose it? And, and and how long do these results last for? As a declaration, I've not actually tried the biofiller as yet, uh, yeah. but, you know, very, very keen on looking into it. Um, I have had some experience with autologous fat transfer and certainly, um, although I don't do that now, a lot of the patients I have, I'll be sharing with, you know, the plastic surgeons that will do that. Mm. And I think that's certainly the kind of candidate where they're after some volumization. Um, you know, they may have tried traditional fillers in the past and not necessarily done well with that. Uh, again, this is an idea of something that's very much, you know, autologous from themselves and almost like that kind of autologous fat transfer. Uh, they're, they're theoretically, and hopefully over the time, we will have evidence for that, uh, that it will be a longer stability uh, and better longevity for that product uh, over something like the traditional fillers. 
Mm. Um, I think very positive with the data that, that Helen and, and other crew have with regards to uh, the kind of tolerability, um, the ability to do it in the clinical setting. You don't need a big complex kind of scientific setup for that. Um, uh, and certainly looking positive in terms of good patient outcomes. But I'll, I'll have to defer to Helen in terms of uh, you know any of the clinicians that have done it to date. So if you're using it as a filler, let, let's use a tear trough yep. or a nasolabial fold as yeah. a good example. Why do you need yep. the PRP? Why can't you just use the albumin 3D matrix just to fill a hole? Yeah, oh. I mean, Helen, I'll yeah, let you... I can answer that if you're yeah. right. Yeah, please. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the reason is um, there's plentiful data looking at the plate release growth factors effect on adipose tissue. Okay, so um, and it's, its effect on dermal fibroblasts, its effect on myocytes. So when you place the biofiller, say like into the hypodermis, it, it has a dual fold or triple fold effect. The growth factors will actually uh, push forward, uh, push externally like towards in into the dermis mm. and they'll actually give some stimulus effect to the dermal fibroblasts it'll also in, uh, initiate regeneration of the adipose tissue yeah. and it will also provide uh, regeneration instruction to the mimetic muscles wherever but if we're touching them so sometimes it'll actually be so active during treatment that the mimetic muscles might start spasming or twitching which we sometimes see with the even the little erectopillar muscles uh, after exposure to PRP when we're just even injecting the skin. Mm. So it's actually the, the triple-fold regeneration effect as well as the volume. So the volume restoration, you just do that with any kind of heated plasma. And if you follow the science, you should get three to six months volume effect uh, after a little bit of volume loss after the first week. Um but it's the regeneration effect that the patients love the most. So they actually, particularly in their faces, they would describe that their faces are actually moving as their younger face did. And that's because of the regeneration of their mimetic muscles. And you can start, patients can feel it truly within a minute after injecting. They can actually say, oh my gosh, there's my muscles are feeling like they're being stimulated. It's like an, in, an injectable are. M face. <laughs> <laughs> so we yeah, did, yeah, we, yeah. We did yeah, another so like, episode so, on M-Face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like the M-Face is like basically in, in providing instruction to those muscles to fire up. It's kind of like we describe it as, um, you know, imagine there's like a sleeping teenage boy <laughs> on the sofa, never getting off the sofa. They're basically got an annoying parent <laughs> shaking them saying like, seriously, enough now, enough resting, get up and start and start uh, being active. So not a teenage boy, it could be a teenage girl, it could be anybody, but um, <laughs> that's that's what happens and patients feel it and that's what they like the most and they um, really enjoy it because it's their own product. They find the science quite fascinating and um, we're actually seeing a lot of men coming forward for treatment because they're not associating it potentially with like the HA fillers of lips yeah. and cheeks, um, which they might not want to do um but they don't mind the idea of having some of their own biology put back into their face to help out their aging fantastic yeah, so look you know it, it's very early days and um it's solely for allocuro practices at this point in time and it's just been a rolled out staged approach because we are inundated with inquiry um so and we don't want to kind of 
sell it to everybody and then not be able to support it clinically because um, it's it, you really there is more training involved than just for doing PRP. Uh, more information about patient selection, uh, planning treatments. It's definitely not for every patient. It's definitely not for every injector either. Yeah, yeah. But for, for if it all works, if it all works out for the right patient, um, it can give provide a very a very nice benefit in a very um, relatively low risk way, I guess. How yeah. do you? Um, it's all about you know, that risk benefit for patient. You when you talk about your treatment toolbox, you've got all these tools. And things cost, you know, different there's different fees for everything. There's different downtimes, different risk profiles, and it's mm. all about choosing what you have out of your toolbox for what most what was most suitable for that patient and what they can afford. And you know, you don't want to sort of sign them up to something that they can't continue long term. Whereas bifilar for the treatment outcome, it's a very reasonable fee for the for patients. Yeah. Mm. So I guess that's another part of it. Um, just a quick one on occlusion. What do you do in the event that you have a blocked vessel with with biofillers? Have you got any recourse at all? Yeah. So um, yeah. So if the, the best way to prevent an occlusion is uh, is to follow the protocol. So there are a number of steps, of course, that would be part of training. If the cannula did enter a vessel and you injected the product, it, it's a space occupying product it could occlude the vessel right however it isn't hydrophilic like ha is so it won't be attracted towards uh moisture or fluid so it's been well proven to be volume stabilized Uh, we have tested biofiller samples like in vitro testing with hyalase and it does break up the biofiller um, uh, gel material into far smaller clumps but it never changes it back to liquid plasma. It's mm. kind of like once you bake the cake, you can't ever get the egg back out of it. Let's say, right? It's it's still there, but in just tiny little clumps. So um, the strategy is to use vasodilation techniques. So there would be um, GTN sublingual GTN spray is part of the protocol. Use topical GTN ointment, like rectogesic ointment, um, heat packs to increase uh, vascular supply. Um, sublingual aspirin and then you'd also employ highlays to around the occlusion to um, basically break up the biofiller into smaller comps um, and it also reduces the pressure around it around the vessel to allow that vessel to expand so it reduces the ha content within the extracellular matrix um, and then you can employ um, steroids and uh the sildenafil-type uh, medications, which are yeah. scripted. Um, be interested to see what it looked like on an ultrasound, not that you want patients who are occluded, mm. but just to see if it acts differently yeah. or the vessel is mm. acting yeah. differently. We, we, have, we have observed injection under ultrasound. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it does look different to HA, yeah, because it's far more uh, like homologous with the surrounding tissue. It's a far better match. Yeah. Fantastic. Probably well, not as easy to identify. Then, yeah. Right? Well, I'm fully informed feel? about how PRP. Feel? How do you feel, Jake? Have we had? I mean, it, it was know. a great discussion. <laughs> yeah. Look, the technology changes. Things things improve. Like you said with the sculpture, we all put it in the bin and said never doing it again. And now it's had a renaissance, and everyone's excited about it. So um, I'm trying not to be closed-minded about anything. I, I did a post yesterday on lifting threads and. 
you know, I've never used them in yep. my life and they're very controversial and some people think they're rubbish and some people think they're amazing. So I, I'm just here to learn. I'm not yeah. here to sort of say something is, yeah, you know, not to be used. Yeah. So oh, it's yeah. good. A progression of time, progression of knowledge. hundred percent. So we, thank you guys. Did we have any other listener questions? Yeah. I thought I no. saw it. We're all good. We're I done? think we're done. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. It's been very enlightening, very exciting. Um, I know you don't have any space for any more customers, which is probably going to make people want to reach out to you more. It's like, you know, it's like the nightclub you can't get into, the yeah. line out the front. You've got to be a VIP to get in. So we'll have your details at the bottom of the podcast. So, you know, if someone does want to reach out just to inquire, then th that's where you reach out to Helen and get yeah. more information. Yeah. yeah. And we'd love to have you back at some point as things progress and you've got more more data and more, and more to share with us. Um, please let us know because I think there'll be lots of people interested in uh, seeing how this journey continues. Yeah. So thank you so yeah. much. Any parting comments from you guys? No, I mean, I guess probably just in summary at the end of the day, uh, as, as with everything else, it's just coming down to patient selection. You know, you've got a, a patient in front of you. You want to do the best by that patient at that point for what they have on the cards. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think the, the reassurance, again, as I mentioned before, is having that kind of uh, data and knowledge behind mm. it. And, and Alacura is certainly not resting on their laurels and saying, we've got this data from 10 years ago and this is it. You know, they're continually revising and looking into that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as the evidence by coming uh, coming across and doing things like the biofiller now, which, uh, you know, as, as it should be, an ever-evolving space. Um, so it's really exciting times for, for me to be involved in this at the moment. So Excellent. Yeah. Anything from you, yeah. Helen? Oh, yeah. I just want to say as well, there's a whole big wide world of regenerative medicine out there. Like, you know, Australia, we're very cautious, which is exactly how we should be. Um, but there will be great things coming on online um, in, in the future. So there's, you know, before we get to the published research stage, there's, you know, products under development and protocols under development for five or ten years. So I think there is... A, significant patient interest in regenerative medicine like using their own biology the body knows how to heal itself already all we're doing is trying to uh, harness our knowledge more about how we can actually capture that healing ability and place it to where the body's actually having trouble and um, we love working in this space we love working with great people um, and it's yeah it's good it's a, it's a, it's a great medical uh, procedural space to work within and I'm just excited about the future for, to be honest yeah and Biofiller we're looking forward to seeing how, um, how the patient it's all about the patients as well at the end of the day it's yeah. really if you if you can deliver good patient outcomes by well, whatever means you need behind that um, really everything just will work out in the end is what I think yeah. we couldn't agree more fantastic well thank you guys nice to catch up yeah. and we shall speak soon thank you, thank you. take care for our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.